good, dear friends. Thank you so much for joining yet another episode of Share the Wealth. And today's conversation is going to be with Chris, a good friend of mine uh, for the last decade and a half. We met when I was in Bangalore. So we continued that friendship and, and God has sustained our friendship. You may be a little confused when you hear him, uh, imagining him to be a, a pastor or a theologian or a teacher. Uh, in To be honest with you, he may be, he is one. Read uh, enough to be one, uh, but uh, in his day job he's a physician. And I think we begin this conversation with his experience of uh, serving and um, caring for the uh, COVID patients, and you can see some of the pressures that our doctors have gone through. Um, Chris works in a state called Kerala in India. I'm sure that experience is an epitome of what's happening across the world. And many of the developed economies are um, recovering or on the path of recovery, but uh, many of the developing, uh, developed countries are on the path of recovery, but the developing countries are still facing challenges. And Chris is in the, uh, in the firefight mode to kind of help there. But our conversation is all about God and theology. And uh, if you are intrigued and interested in that aspect, this conversation will uh, really help you. Though we don't agree, uh, you know, in the way we see things, but that's the point, right? I mean, that's what we said we would do and share the well is bring about different points of view. Though we don't agree, we don't have to um, uh, cancel one another. We don't have to... Uh, be irritated with one another, but we can share with one another what we think and how we see the world and, uh, you know, learn from one another and respect one another. Uh, so that's the point of this conversation. Chris and I um, enjoy the conversation. I'll talk to you guys at the end of this uh, episode. So I was talking about Psalm 51, five. So yeah. uh, behold, I brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now you replace that word sin with anything else and uh, you get a completely different meaning like for example in love my mother hugged me who was in love my mother in anger my mother slapped me who was angry my mother in sin my mother conceived me who was sinning my mother i mean that would make sense that approach would make sense but we've turned it around to mean in sin my mother conceived me means i was sinful when my mother conceived, right? So uh, that's not something that you get from a plain reading of the passage. That's one thing. The other thing is when you go to the Septuagint, uh, you have the word. So if, if the idea is in sin, my mother conceived me, meaning the idea being that I was conceived sinful or uh, with original sin or with that concept in mind. But when you go to the Septuagint, you see that it's talking about sins in the plural. In sins, my mother conceived me, right? Uh, and there it's very clear uh, where it's not talking about a singular sin. It cannot be talking about sinful nature if it's multiple sins. So it's talking about something else. And the Septuagint was translated by Jews uh, before the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So they understood what they were doing, what the passage meant. And I would assume that they were faithful in translating it well. All that we know about the New Testament, 
much of what we know about the New Testament is that they heavily used the Septuagint. Most of the, uh, many, if not most of the use of Old Testament in the New Testament usually refers to New Te- uh, the Septuagint verses. So we know from the New Testament that the New Testament authors were very comfortable using the Septuagint and they had a very good knowledge of the Septuagint. So going by that, the again, in sin, my mother conceived. In fact, even in the Hebrew, it's quite clear. In Hebrew, it's just three words. It says in uh, three or four words, in sin, she conceived me, mother of me. That in sin is one word. She conceived me is one word. Mother of me, my mother is one word. So it's everything that the woman is doing, the mother of David is doing, but somehow we've turned it around to mean that it's talking about David himself. Then you come to Romans 5, 12 to 21. Um, um, There's the entire problem of original sin really boils down to an error in translation by uh, the Latin translators when they translated the Vetus Latina. So you had the New Testament in Greek. You had the entire book of Romans, the letter to the Romans in Greek. And that got translated into Latin. Now, when it got translated into Latin, the way they translated Romans 5.12 was, um, um, and um, in sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and uh, death spread to all men because all sin, right? Um, Let me read that. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, right? Now, when we read this, let's read it first simply. Sin came into the world, how? Through one man. We all know who that man is, Adam, right? Right. Statement number two, death through sin. So Adam brought sin into the world. Sin brought death into the world. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay. Now there's a few things we have to look at over here. One, death spread to all men, not because Adam sinned. Death spread to all men because all men sinned. Right. So Mm. that's number one. Number two, when we read and so death spread to all men, there is a tendency for us to understand the word so as therefore. In fact, the Greek word doesn't mean therefore. It means similarly. So it is the first part. Actually, in the Greek, it reads just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin. Similarly, death spread to all men because all men sin. Right? Now, in the Vetus Latina, what happens is they translated it as uh, they all sinned in, it, 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 they translated it in such a way that it all comes out to mean that they all sinned in Adam, right? In him all sinned or something like that. But uh, that's not what the Greek says. And in fact, most of our English translations are also quite, uh, they're not clear on how they translate this passage. But if you go to the Greek and you check it out, uh, the first part is just as, and there's a statement, Similarly, this statement. So just as death came, similarly, 
death comes here also how did death come through sin how does death spread through sin right so it's not because adam sinned therefore we should not read the so as therefore rather the greek over there means similarly and so then you come to the next verse sin indeed was in the world before the law was given but sin is not imputed where there is no law we always talk about the imputation of sin right now ironically there are only two passages in the bible that talk about imputation of anything one is in uh, philemon when uh, paul tells philemon to impute whatever debt onesimus has to him to his account something about debt and imputing in philemon and the only other place where you see something talked about imputation is here in verse uh, 13 where it says that sin is not imputed where there is no law right what's the first part of the verse sin indeed was in the world before the law was given and it's talking about we come to know by the with, through the next verse what law he's talking about right he is not talking about the so called noahide laws right the noahide laws is not something that's found in the bible by the way even though it's very popular in um when we have a judeo christian talk and all, but and it's not talking about the adamic law noahide laws very specifically talks about the mosaic law which we understand when we read the next verse yet death so look at this before the law was given but sin is not counted where there is no law yet death reigned from adam to moses meaning even though there was no law death reigned from adam to moses why stop with moses because through moses came right yet death reigned from adam to moses even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of adam now look at that death reigned from adam to moses even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of adam now if i am guilty for adam's sin am i not haven't i had the transgression of adam on me don't i in some form have the transgression of adam in me or on me or through me or haven't i done the transgression of adam yet it speaks death reigned even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of adam it doesn't even say not the transgression of adam it says not like the transgression of adam. right which which gives you one more step of separation so um that comes and then when we read verses 15 to 21 uh, one of the interesting things you have to note is that in the translation one of the things that th- this is a very difficult passage to translate but one of the things we have to recognize is that what the translators have done is that they have inserted a lot of words in verses 15 to mostly 15 to 19 right they have inserted a lot of words that aren't there in the greek and these words what they really do is they um give you the theology of the translator rather than actually tell you what the word means because in two complete verses or rather one com- two complete phrases there are no verbs and if you look through this passage from 15 to 19 you you've seen 
you see verbs throughout but in two passages it, there are no verbs and then when you think about it where is a sentence what is a sentence that you have where you don't use verbs it's usually a saying right or uh, you know uh, something where where there's a saying is probably the only place i can think of where you don't have verbs you just have uh, you have sayings like that they're very rare but you have sayings where there's no verbs in them and so you have two of those over here and the other thing that you see is that the word man is repeatedly used even though it's not there in the greek in fact i've marked this out over here 1 2 3 4 5 times the word man is used between verses 16 and 8 oh, in fact 15 all the way sorry. Yeah. yeah in fact from 15 onward 1 2 3 4 5 6 seven times the word man is written in the english even though it never occurs in the greek right and uh, there's a lot of trans the, the translators i'm sure they had a difficult time with this passage but uh, the way this passage can be read is uh, quite different from the way uh, most people have translated it and i'm not blaming them i'm not saying that they knowingly did this it's obvious when you do a translation that your theology comes through right it 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 doesn't make sense for you to do a translation and your theology not come through right it's easy to say that uh, oh, i'm very uh, uh, very mechanical when my when i do my translation but every translation is an interpretation very rarely do you get a translation where there's no interpretation and so um, this is again one of those passages where uh you can't really it's and get the doctrine of total depravity out of this so then i go to the theology and then you go to the theology online all you see is reformed stuff i mean right. the first two three pages of, i mean think about it the catholic church and the orthodox church is far bigger than the protestant church when you put them together you barely see anything by any of their websites on the internet i mean you can scroll you can put in a topic theologic theological topic online and just keep scrolling a page after page you won't find a single catholic you might even find a catholic after a few pages but an eastern orthodox writing on something very difficult to come by right that's simply because the reformed people have had an um outsized interest in actually putting down what they believe right they've actually had a major major um impact on the world on christianity in the world simply because they were faithful in writing down what they believed right we've had lots of lots of uh, i mean there were 12 apostles but we have only the writings of two apostles or rather we have more but i mean the gospels are only of two you have matthew and you have john the other eight apostles oh, sorry 10 apostles haven't written a gospel right so we have the complete world view of matthew and john given to us in the gospels you have a better understanding of john's understanding of christ because he's also written three letters and the book of revelation right we've got a little bit of an understanding about uh, peter because he's written two letters 
James, because he's written a letter, but that James might be the brother of Jesus, might not even be the apostle James. Right? So the fact that writing something down, keeping it for posterity, that has a huge impact on on forming theology and all of that. So I I would rather uh, put the blame at the feet of those who haven't written down what they believe, hmm. rather than blame the the reformed people for being faithful in putting down what they believe. Right? It is important that. Uh, all sides come out. And for all sides to come out, all sides have to write. Right? If all sides don't write, you never know what the other side believed. And very often what we see is that uh, the person who writes down always wants to magnify his own view. It's natural. There's nothing uh, unnatural about it. I would always like to think that what I have written is right. And I would like to think that I want as many people on my side as I can. And so what do I do? I make the other side look bad, right? So there are a lot of straw man arguments uh, that are put forward. But um, I think I would not blame the reformed people for doing what they do. I would say that those who are not reformed have a responsibility to carry out their work. Now, I would love for all Catholics and Orthodox people in the world to become evangelical, right? I, uh, I, I would love that. But at the same time, we should recognize there's a lot of rich thought that's already been uh, poured over, written, reams have been written about so many doctrines of which we are inheritors. The Reformed Church is largely an inheritor of Augustinian theology. And it is important for the Protestant Church to recognize that Augustinian theology was not the only Roman Catholic theology. In fact, Eastern Orthodox theology is quite different from Roman Catholic theology, even though when we look at it, we think, okay, they're two peas in a pod. We think they're both the same. They're very different. They're very different. And uh, we think of the Roman Catholic Church as a monolith. It isn't. They've got divisions within the church. You've got the liberal side. You've got the conservative side. Even theologically, the Franciscan is not the same as the Jesuit. Right? There are differences. The Thomistic person is not the same as the Augustinian person. There are real theological differences even within the Roman Catholic Church. And so it's important that we recognize that and uh, see that. So I, I was asking, I was telling you, you know, what original sin? So there is one side of the Roman Catholic Church that believes that original sin can be defined as prior to the fall of Adam, you had the spirit ruling over the soul and the soul ruling over the body, right? And after the fall, that got all mangled up, right? That is their understanding of original sin. And then they use two words for guilt, right? They say it doesn't really mean guilt in the way we in the English world understand guilt. They say culpa and reatus, right? And they say that it is one, but it's not the other. And so you're not really guilty for Adam's sin, but you will bear the consequences of Adam's sin or something of that, that sort, right? You have something in the Eastern Orthodox Church where 
they have a completely different view of adam being born not perfect and then falling from that great height of perfection but rather adam having been born i mean having been made um, not imperfect but with an ability to attain to uh perfection uh perfection I mean, there's a word they use for that uh um i i forget the word it it's not exactly divinity it, it's something about getting together with the divine nature actually really all it means is sanctification but the word they use is so problematic that as soon as you hear it you're like that's heresy because it almost sounds like they're saying that they can become god that's not what they're saying it's basically a talk about uh, being sanctified into the image of god and so you have that and then you have the anabaptist church where they don't believe in original sin at all um they yeah, you got balthasar habmayer who's a little uh, on both sides about this but then pilgram marpic and the anabaptist church is quite clear that he doesn't believe in uh, total depravity and all of that you have all of that but none of these people have written as much as the reformed church have written and when i say reformed church i'm talking primarily the presbyterian anglican lutheran churches right the baptists have come out with a few books but the baptists are kind of split between calvinist armenian and provisionist right now right and so you have uh, three groups of three kinds of salvation all coming from uh, the same denomination and now there's a lot of uh, at least a few years back there was quite a bit of a, uh, entanglement between the calvinist and the provisionist side but that's it's all fizzling out now i guess and then you look at the mainline churches in india where do we get our theology from we get all our theology from the west where do we get our books from we get all our books from the west who writes our theology john piper does john macarthur does it all gets translated into hindi and malayalam that's all it's all their work right so we don't have uh in india we do have but they're not famous they're not popularized we have we do have theologians but they're not of this they're not as famous as or as influential as these men you know i mean you ask any tom dick and harry on the road if you're a christian do you know any theologian any pastor name somebody famous immediately who are the names that come to mind i know john piper john macarthur albert moeller rc sproul you ask me i'll take a time to think of somebody else you know it'll take me time even though i'm you know swimming in this you know so it took me a while to find a few good authors who have biblical views and one of the things to recognize is even as tulip was constructed and um given to the world there were a lot of people who signed off on it who said we don't completely agree with everything that this says right but for the sake five of five point calvinism yeah five point yeah we will agree and one of the main sticking points was limited atonement right many of the greatest uh, calvinists were four point calvinists simply because they could not accept limited atonement and so they are called amaraldians have has anyone heard the name amaraldian no, no one's even 
heard what Amaraldian is. Nobody knows what Amaraldian means. But four-point Calvinists who believe that atonement is not limited, they are called Amaraldians. And uh, who's heard of them? How many books do you know of them? Because even Amaraldians never call themselves that. They call themselves Calvinists. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's the framework out of which they come. Right? So then you have, so that's why I went into the historical thing then to find out where did all this come from. And so uh, I found that uh, this idea of total depravity uh, was not much older than Augustine himself. So for the first 400 years of the church, um, you there was nothing called total depravity. Uh, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, even the term original sin may have been coined by Augustine for all I know. But the idea is that the first 400 years of the church, everyone, all the early church writers, they call them the early church fathers, they all believed in uh, free will. They all believed that uh, infants are not guilty of Adam's sin. They all believed that, uh, you know, atonement, that Christ died for everyone. In fact, to say otherwise, in fact, believe in limited atonement uh, was heresy and it was actually condemned as heresy in the church. And so you have all of that, but you never hear any of that, right? So I, I, I feel it's just a failure on our part, on my part, on people who believe as I do, that uh, we haven't written down our beliefs and we haven't um, told the world about it. Um, okay, so the recording is on. Uh, but go, go ahead, go ahead. You were saying, Chris, go for it. This last week's been uh, quite intense. Every day morning you go to work, um, you get the list of cases you need to see, go to the ward, um, and you get into the PPE kit. PPE is short for Personal Protective Equipment. Getting into that is like getting into a furnace. <laughs> get into it, and like in you're sweating head to toe. And uh, then, yeah, you go in, you see each patient, uh, you get their vitals, uh, you record it, you inform the person outside because uh, you can't handle, you're not allowed to handle the file while you're in the PP. So there's another doctor with you writing down the notes uh, that you dictate to them. And then you go on to the next patient and then you repeat. So you see the patient, you talk to them, examine them, um, check their vitals, inform the doctor outside, and then she puts down the notes. Mm. Once you're done with rounds, at least after having seen all the cases, you get back, uh, go, I mean, get out of the PPE kit, first thing. And then, get the file and then go through all the investigations, you know, mm. see how the patient's gotten better compared to yesterday, compared to last week, if the patient's been here that long. And uh, yeah, just give the advice for the day. And uh, yeah, that's basically it. And then after that, you go down, depending on which ward you're doing rounds in, you have a particular doctor to a senior uh, to report to. So. 
you report to that senior, you tell them all the actions that you've taken for your cases, and then uh, if required, they let you know what further needs to be done. Uh, otherwise, the next step is to go ahead and call all the bystanders, because none of the, I mean, call the relatives, because people are not allowed to stay in a Come. COVID bystanders. Yeah. So yeah, that's what we do. We we call up the relatives and we inform them about the patient's condition, and uh, that's that's pretty much our day. Mm. Um, anyway, before we go ahead, uh, I have some questions just around this. Um, why you know I ask uh, I ask the guests to just introduce themselves so it's you know it's easy. So just a brief introduction, Chris, about you. That'll be awesome. Yeah. Okay, so uh, my name is Chris, um, born and raised in Kuwait. I was there during the Gulf War. Um, we lived in Kuwait for another two months after Iraq had invaded Kuwait. A lot of interesting stories that happened during that time. <laughs> um, but uh, by God's grace, uh, the Iraqis never hurted us. They never hurt us because uh, Indian sold Indian army, I believe, had trained the Iraqi army, and so mm -hmm. Indian had never been hurt during the entire episode. Um, there was, in fact, uh, an instance where my parents were stopped at a check post, and uh, the soldier had asked for his my dad's watch. Uh, it was an Omega watch, so. They asked for his watch and my dad's like, no, I'm not giving it. And they didn't do anything. They just let him go. I mean, we were all in the car, my mom, me, my sister, we were all in the car. And they didn't do anything because we were Indians. And uh, I mean, of course, there was God's hand of grace upon us. Um, Toyota Sunny, the guy uh, on whom that movie Airlift was made. Mm -hmm. uh, he was one of the major forces uh, that God used in getting Indians out of Kuwait back to India. Wow. And we got into a bus, um, traveled to, through Iraq, through Baghdad, in fact. Um, the check post, the first major check post was at Basra. Uh, Baghdad, um, we had uh, food at a restaurant in Baghdad, and then traveled all the way to uh, uh, the no man's land, the border between Iraq and uh, Jordan. And we stayed in a tent there for five days. Wow. And that was set up by the uh, Red Cross, the UN the Red Cross. They'd set up like thousands of tents. It's the only time I've ever gone camping in my life. And <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Wow. <laughs> Cocos and tin fish and yeah, cucumber. So yeah, it was good. At least for kids that I had I me and my it was good. I'm sure my parents they they had a really really tense time because you can hardly pack anything when you're running for your life. I mean, two months we were in Kuwait, but then when we had to get on the bus, it's not like you can pack up everything and you know get a U-Haul and move everything. It's, <laughs> the minimum, you know, necessities. Um, we got to Jordan, uh, and then uh, from Amman, uh, there was the airlift operation that was carried out. 
the largest in the history of um, that we've ever had. Not just the largest in the history of India; it's the largest in the history in of the, the world. world. Yeah. yeah, the largest airlift operation ever carried out to bring uh, to fly out all the Indians from Amman to what was then Bombay, and um, yeah, got a train to Kerala, and believe it or not. the porters wouldn't take money the taxi drivers wouldn't take money they drop you wherever you wanted to but they wouldn't take money my parents they gave them the money but for the most part uh, they were like we don't need money i mean there was such a, a wow. spirit of charity you know brotherliness and people in kerala they were i mean it was wonderful and uh, if you recall that was one of the times in kerala where where prayer was phenomenal there was a lot of prayer well, going tell me on. the year tell me the year 1990 wow yeah august 2nd 1990 saddam hussein rolled in <laughs> in fact uh, 2 am he rolled in with his tanks um, morning my mom woke up she got ready for work was going to work and everyone's like what are you doing you can't go to work there's tanks on the road there's soldiers everywhere and she's like uh, no i have to go to work and then uh, usually she drives to work but then that day she asked my dad to drive her to work she went there there were kuwaiti students there and uh, she reports directly to the director of nursing at least she used to when she used to work there and so she just then uh, told all the students go home um, we'll see how things work out from here yeah and then she basically came back home we lived in kuwait after that for two months august 2nd towards the end of september is when we left kuwait and all of this yeah so thank god um uh, was wonderful uh hand of god over us during that entire time parents got called back quickly soon after back to kuwait um as soon as the iraqis knew that they had lost the war they set all the oil wells on fire oil mm. wells there were 200 oil wells burning and i mean kuwait had called in people from so many places to put out the oil wells and everybody was trying everything that they could there's this guy called red adair from the us he's supposed to be one of the best at putting out oil wells and even he was helpless i mean and then it was a little company in czechoslovakia that mm. uh, found the way to put out the oil wells and one by one they just put them all out and uh, parents would go to work daddy and mummy was telling me they were telling me that uh, they'd go to work and when you come back you like you'd be covered with soot and uh, uh, yeah cuz cuz all the um soot in the air because of the oil wells burning and stuff so, yeah so i was in school in kerala during that time finished my schooling in kuwait after that um came back to india finished my college um did my undergrad post grad medicine and then i worked in uh, trivandrum bangalore and right now i am working in uh, uh, tiruvalla kerala got it that's that's basically the um, the highlights i mean I'm, it's not the highlights but i mean for me one of the biggest 
most fascinating times of my life of course is the the war episode uh yeah for me having got saved is about as exciting and as fascinating as that mm. and uh, i was raised in a mainline church it's called the marthama church um services were in malayalam so um i didn't understand much of what was going on um was at home we used to speak english in school we used to speak english so english was mostly our lingua franca and we really weren't that well versed in malayalam so um all the high literary malayalam that was being used in church was quite foreign to me and so even if they did preach the gospel i never really heard it in church um when i went to college um i went to a brethren church they call it independent it's mostly brethren and uh, <laughs> uh that's where i first heard the gospel that's where i got saved that's where i came to know the lord and the day i got saved man it was like my eyes were opened mm-hmm. i it's like i saw the bible in a whole new light altogether up until then i thought i knew the bible um i used to win all the those memory verse competitions and the bible quiz competitions and all those things that they used to have in sunday school i only thought that you know that's all there is to the bible those stories in the bible and that's it i knew god was real i knew jesus was real i i never doubted the historicity of the bible or the authenticity of the bible or anything that was written in the bible but there was nothing captivating about it mm. until the day i received and ever since that day it's been like the bible opened up to me like um, a whole new world and treasures out of it every day and uh, that that's it's been my passion ever since to study the bible and to uh, read it and study it and ask questions and find answers that no one could give me a satisfactory answer to so that's been my passion now for for many years now so i just thank mm. god for all that morning i go to work yes but i come back and when i'm free almost all my time is spent studying the word and reading theology so yeah that that's my passion yeah, yeah that is awesome and i i know i you know we we've been together now for you know close to what's that 15 years we've known one another 15 17 years we met in bangalore right when we met in uh, eu in the school spot maybe right uh so um uh, but when you were telling your story um for me it was like um israel escaping from egypt <laughs> right i don't know if you made you know a similar you know it seems to me that it's unusual that god would save the people right from the heartland yeah. through the land that uh, you know the occup you know the the, the exactly. occupiers land right it's crazy Right. and and you know you cross the jordan <laughs> into then you know 
Maluland, Promised Land. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So it's fascinating, fascinating. Um, you know, and you were how old were you? With I was like, uh, eight or nine. I was six. Six. So for me, yeah. For me, it was all. Uh, you know, it's like living in a movie. Mm. That was the time I first learned the words "cut missile" and you know all those kind of tanks. And you know, as a kid, that those are the things that excites you, right? Fights and you know wars, and you're in the thick of it, and you're not thinking about dying. You're only thinking about wow, look at that, it's so big, <laughs> awful. You know, that's all you're thinking about. You're not thinking about how it might affect you, affect your life. So yeah, that, mm. crazy for a for a brief moment you were a refugee, right? And just passing through, right, all the way before you got picked up overall, you know, from Oman, right? Yeah, and in fact, that is the exact reason that people back in Kerala refused to take money. My parents forced the money into their hands because my parents, by God's grace, they were doing well. So uh, there's no need to deprive the people here. because a lot of other people were suffering i mean we were doing well but not everyone did well back in kuwait yeah. there were a lot of people who suffered quite a bit and uh, yeah but um, my parents knew where they were and uh, they mm. knew that they could yeah it's fabulous fabulous that 1990 happens to be the year that my dad passed away uh february i don't know when when did you guys land august right is that august August is when Saddam entered Kuwait. September, the end of September is when we left Kuwait. I'm a little hazy about whether we reached India end of September or beginning of October. Okay, sometime that range, that time. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 good. Um, and, and so you, you know, obviously, mom and dad went back, and then you went back as well, right? Back into Kuwait. Yes. Okay. and then you finish your schooling there and then you came for graduation to india right okay got it got it got it and now you're married and you have two babies I've right two yeah two girls yeah that's good we share we are com- we are common in that aspect <laughs> we got two girls mm-hmm. uh, so how how is that kind of stage kicked off it's very different than you know when you were bachelor and things like that how how has that changed how has that changed you being a husband and a dad well uh, being a husband didn't change me that much uh, my wife was quite uh, supportive uh, for the time that i spent studying uh, but after having become a dad that kind of opened up my eyes to what it means to have a father's love for the time <laughs> that is when i probably first came to experience of course i not saying that i experienced what god the father the the level at which he loves us but a small inkling of what it means for a father to love his child uh it's completely different from a man loving a woman and it's a, I, i'm pretty sure for any father out there there's a different level of sacrifice that he'd be willing to put in for his kids to make sure that uh, they do well physically spiritually emotionally uh, yeah 
Yeah. So it's, isn't it fascinating? Like, you know, the husband and wife, you know, in our, you know, in the spiritual kind of dynamic, it would be Jesus loving the church, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, but then when kids come along, it's like the father loving the son. It's, you know, it's a different dynamic, right? You, you, yes. you know, scriptures kind of open up differently, I guess, right? When we experience somewhat of a smaller reality of the mm-hmm. greater reality, right? So it's um, it's fabulous. Yeah. 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 I mean, before I got married, uh, that was my thing, you know. It, uh, I always thought, you know, marriage, my marriage should be the kind of marriage that people look at and say, oh, man, this is just like Christ and the church. But you get married after you have kid, the kind of love that you have for the kids far exceeds. Okay, kind of. I I am I'm not sure how I should put that without it sounding wrong. But I'm sure the love that a father has for his children is quite different than the kind he has for his wife. Yeah, very different. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it's different may not be, you know, in terms of gravitas and scale, it could be, it should be the same, um, you know, but there's still that, you know, emotional aspect that is not just you loving, but also your wife loving the kids, right? So it's a it's a different kind of dynamic, right? different dynamic. Um, one of the things that I've seen, and, you know, you can comment on this is, uh, the sacrifice, right? When when we start to read about, you know, Abraham's sacrifice or Jesus' sacrifice of the cross, it's a, you, you can't even like uh, start to imagine what that looks like because when you have your own, would you give? You know, it's so difficult. It's actually impossible, right? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Oh, now, now we just say uh, it's unbiblical. <laughs> right but just the just the dynamic just thinking about what the, the transaction was it's like this is uh, crazy yeah. Right? Yeah. and especially giving to somebody who's kind of your enemy that's even more wor- that's worse like you could give it to your friend but would you give to your enemy that's crazy right but crazy. exactly what all the first century, second century, third century Christians did, right? Now we live in a time when most of us say, you know, fight for your right. We say <laughs> defend, 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 you know. I mean, uh, I was speaking to my sister-in-law yesterday. Uh, she's in the U.S. and she was saying in her church, mm. uh, every Sunday when they have service, there's two guys with guns in the church. And uh, it's like, I'm like, wow, that's like having an air marshal on planes, you know? It's, we have, um, we also have a cop outside. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. But when we compare that to the first, second, third century church, it's a time when they were willing to let themselves be sacrificed for the spread of the gospel. I'm not saying that having a cop outside is wrong. I'm just saying that right, right. the way we have seen things now, that way we see things now is not the way that things were being done back in the day. 
So I have, I, I, I'm still struggling with this idea of pacifism versus just war. I, I still don't know. Uh, I still don't know how to justify just war. I've heard uh, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer struggled with this. I know that he finally decided to take up arms against Hitler. Uh, I know that Eric Metaxas has written a book on this and where he talks about how Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes through this. And he makes a few good arguments. I'm not sure if we can apply those mostly in our lives. Um, the Anabaptists have a good argument for pacifism. I, um, I'm still struggling to understand which is right. right. It's such a such a um, kind of gray topic that God doesn't give us a straight answer, right? Um, because in Christ you see pacifism, seemingly, right? But in in Israel you see just war, right? If if you were to kind of zoom out, right, from a historic, because God says go take these guys on, right? Um, he was using Israel as the instrument for clearance. Well, obviously, Israel didn't listen to what God was saying, and they became synchronistic. Uh, um, synch yeah, syncretism, right? Syncretist syncretistic uh, right. in their approach, and they didn't drive the people whom God said, drive them out, finish them up, right? So that, that you can kind of see... <laughs> Uh, are you know uh, when it came? I think probably when it came to, yeah, I think it's a paradigm, right? The the paradigms. Um, maybe I don't know. I'm I'm just thinking aloud here. I haven't really thought through as much as you have, Chris. But I'm just thinking the paradigm level is spirit in the spiritual warfare. You give yourself up, but in a you know physical just. Uh, justice issue you stand up for the vulnerable i don't know that is the that is the case if the vulnerable are being attacked if you have the ability to stand up between the oppressor and the oppressed in a, in a just you know in the physical justice system I think you do but in the spiritual world uh i think when we get to us being or somebody else being persecuted for the sake of the faith, then maybe I don't know. That's just a paradigm for me. I haven't thought about it, but one of have. the things the way I put it is if you look at the laws in the Old Testament, especially the Mosaic law, you've got uh, civil law, criminal law, and ceremonial law. Right? right. And then you've got Abraham's circumcision. So you've got civil law, criminal law, ceremonial law, and circumcision. This will cover most of every, just about everything in the Old Testament. Mm. Now, every time, yeah. every time, the, the only thing that comes out of that possibly is moral law, which is, uh, it's also part of it. Uh, and what I wanted to say was, as far as the state is concerned, the state has the right to carry out justice. So when God tells the state 
to go forth and uh, to war against a certain group of people. It's not an individual doing his will. It's the state carrying out uh, the law of God. Okay? Um, but as far as individuals are concerned, yeah, uh, anti-justice is not something that is prescribed. In fact, anytime you know something's been done wrong, it always says there should be two or three witnesses. Take it before the judge. Take it before the priest. Inform them. And if uh, the proof is there, the guy who's done wrong gets judged. Um, the important part over there, I feel, is the power in the hands of the layman or the individual to have the power to actually go and complain to the judge, right? Yeah. So, uh, for example, in Israel, the law was that if a woman got raped, she had to go to the judge or whoever the person in charge was and inform them, this is what has happened, right? And that person gets brought to trial. And so this idea of shame um, causing a woman to cover up the wrong done to her um, is given less weight. And the idea that, yes, you have the power to go and get justice for the wrong done to you is given more weight. So, um, and it also stops the perpetrator from repeating those wrongs again. So, there is a place for um, the individual to bring forth their grievances. Uh, and there is a place for the state to carry out the justice. Yeah, interesting that, um, you know, when the lady who was caught in the act of adultery was brought before Jesus, right? So it's basically that was a, it was a, it, what you're saying is what they were, obviously they had a mean motive behind it, um, yeah. but it was still enacted, right? Uh, in, in some sense of what you are, what you're saying when Jesus came down, yeah, to be with us, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. So, so this this kind of keeps you up at night, right? These kind of uh, discussions <laughs> and debates, right? I've been largely concentrating on the idea of original sin and total depravity for the past few years, studying All that. Right. Yeah, so that's though that's one of the things. So, studying it from the historical perspective, uh, primarily from the biblical perspective. That's how I started off. Then I went into theological perspective of that and then ended up with what the historical perspective was and how it's changed over the years. And so that's been my main focus for quite a while. So why, why don't you yeah, give, give us a, a sense of what you found in your study? Yeah. So <laughs> um, when someone says, I believe in original sin, the first question that you should ask is, which original sin? Right? Because the Catholic Church has a different definition for it. The Eastern Orthodox Church has a different definition for it. The Reformed Churches have a different definition for it. The Anabaptists have a different definition. 
there's almost a different definition for the word original sin as there are denominations mm-hmm. and it's possible to say i believe in original sin without actually meaning what the person you are talking to understands by it right so it all starts with trying to figure out what you mean by the term original sin it's come to mean a lot of different things uh, to different people uh, does it connote guilt uh, does it get transmitted these are all um, questions that theologians have been dealing with for a long time there's biblically speaking um the argument for original sin some people equate that with total depravity though it's not exactly the same um uh, but the argument for that let, let's say total depravity depravity instead of original sin because original sin can mean just about anything uh depending on which church you are from but the argument for total depravity largely rests on a handful of verses you know you can count it on one hand um people might bring in a lot of other verses but for the most part it's largely uh, based on uh, psalm 51 verse 5 uh, romans 5 12 to 21 and very rarely people might bring in some other verses also but it's largely these two verses which are the basis of um the idea of total depravity now whenever you're making any doctrine there's generally um an order you follow so didactic passages get more weightage than narratives and narrative passages get more weightage than poetic passages prophetic passages so you have this hierarchy you have didactic greater than the narrative greater than the poetic prophetic passages whenever you are making doctrine and even among the didactic passages you want to make doctrine out of the clearest passages and you allow the unclear passages to be explained by the clearer passages right and ideally you go to the original languages for that you go to the hebrew you go to the greek to find out what they actually said because we have a lot of english translations and there's a lot of politics that goes on behind many of the english translations um the geneva bible is a very political bible the king james bible it's a very political bible um these uh, and then of course the theology of the translators obviously affects the translation so if you go back to the original hebrew or greek you get a better idea of what they actually wanted to say what they actually said so yeah so biblically the idea of total depravity is quite hard to see um when you go to the old testament sometimes people bring in genesis and they say that uh, seth was made in the image of adam or uh, and so that is a proof that after adam fell 
Seth, you know, uh, is no longer an image bearer of God, but rather he's an image bearer of the fallen Adam. Uh, that's uh, a questionable idea because you had Abel and Cain before that. And the Bible doesn't say anything about Abel and Cain being in the image of Adam. I think the simpler understanding would simply be that, like when we speak, oh, your daughter is the spitting image of you, man. Mm-hmm. When you say the, sim- the simple meaning is he looks just like his dad or she looks just like her dad, right? So I think that's all that was meant. I can't be sure. But as we go on through the scriptures, we see that there are people who bear the image of God. And nowhere in scripture do we see the image of God being marred or lost or anything like that. So um, biblically, it's difficult to get that idea. Now, Psalm 51 verse 5, commonly used, again, that's a poetic passage. Um, you could use it to say that. Uh, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity. The Psalm 51 passage is written in the context of David having slept with Bathsheba and then being outed by Nathan the prophet. So behold, I was brought forth in iniquity would simply mean behold, I was outed in my sin. And in sin did my mother conceive me. That's the next part. Thank you, friends, for joining that conversation. Um, you know, you might not agree with everything that Chris said. I don't agree with everything that he said, but that's the beauty about friendship, right? Um, I think we very narrowly defined friendship to kind of say, you know, we have to agree on absolutely everything and see the world the same way. No, I think there's room for us to dialogue, to discuss, to explore, and to uh, understand one another. And, um, you know, that's the beauty about having friendships that are of diverse um, thinking and background. So um, I've enjoyed, as I mentioned, I'm going to probably mention this over and over again. I've really enjoyed the conversation with Chris. And that's that's the whole thing about Share the Well is we... Um, I can have conversations and uh, listen to one another, learn from one another. So hopefully you enjoyed it. And uh, if you have anything to share, please feel free to visit our website. It's www.sharethewell.community. Or you can drop us a comment in the platforms that you use to stream your podcast. Until next week, have a wonderful uh, week and God bless you. Bye-bye.